Greetings from Amsterdam. I just finished off a tour of Sweden. I had a great time. A lot of great shows. Met a lot of nice folks. Did a lot of really fun stuff on the roadside as I went along. And I want to tell you all about it. But unfortunately, this show is already jam-packed. And I don't think there's enough time to do Sweden justice. So I'm going to wait. And I'm going to tell you all about it on a later episode. So having said that, let's get going with this one. This is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here at my friends Sandra and Luciano's place outside of Amsterdam. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I'd like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Bill DeMaine. Bill is a singer and a songwriter and the co-author of Sgt. Pepper at 50. You can find out everything you need to know about Bill at walkinnashville.com. I'm really happy to have Bill back on the show. If you haven't heard episode 99... It's about when Paul McCartney brought Wings to Nashville for a whole month back in the 70s. It's one of my favorite episodes. It's a beautiful one, so go back and listen to that. And it's great to have Bill back on. Bill's a really talented guy. If you come and visit Nashville, you need to go on his tour. It's at walkinnashville.com. Anyone listening to this show, you're the absolute perfect person to go on this tour. You'll appreciate it, and you'll get to know about some wonderful Nashville history and get to see the real Nashville, the things that we need to preserve. You can also stop off every Saturday. Bill's band Cracker Boots plays at the Family Wash. It's in the afternoon and it's a really good time. I highly recommend that. But Bill was nice enough to invite me into his home in Nashville. And he told me a lot of stories about Sergeant Pepper. They were mostly surrounding the artwork involved there were a lot of firsts. It was the first time lyrics were ever included in an album. It was the first time an album ever had a gatefold. There's a lot of things like that. I learned a lot from this episode, and I think you will too. Here's Bill DeMaine. Definitely the most imitated and recognized album cover in rock history still to this day. I mean, w when you look up Sgt. Pepper parodies online, you'll see, I mean, starting with the Mothers of Invention, right on up through The Simpsons, you know, Peter Blake and Jan Hayworth have done their own spin-off covers. I mean, the, I the idea of, of the collage of the crowd has just become, you know, something that, that you've seen hundreds of times and everybody... I think you could so, show the Sgt. Pepper cover to probably like somebody in, in a jungle tribe and they would say, oh yeah, the Beatles, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it definitely has 
that aspect of, of the legacy. I also think it opened the door for so many things that followed in terms of complexity. This was the first time that a band had ever hired an artist outside of a record company employed designer. You know, and that was a big deal. I mean, Peter Blake and Jan Hayworth had had their work in museums, you know, they and galleries. They were they were well-known artists. So it, again, it, you you're raising you're raising the tone in a way where, you know, suddenly rock musicians are elevated to this place where they're not they're not just employees at EMI Records putting out records. They're artists, you know, and they're collaborating with people who are who are real you know, museum-worthy artists. And you think about the history of, of rock album design since Sgt. Pepper, everything from Dark Side of the Moon to Houses of the Holy to Beck Odelay, all these covers that are instantly recognized and usually employ people who were, you know, trained artists. You know, it's, it's all, I think it all comes from the Beatles, you know. They, I think they, they really started... A, a completely different approach and idea of, of how to make they, they made it they made rock covers art so there were a couple of influences um, for the name sergeant peppers I mean he, he was definitely thinking about all of the sort of San Francisco psychedelic groups with long unwieldy names you know Country Joe and the Fish, you know, uh, Chocolate Watch Band, any of these things. So that was one thing. That The other story that I find really interesting is that apparently he and Mal Evans, who was the, the Beatles' sort of famous roadie and, uh, you know, traveling companion, had been in America in late 66, and they were flying back together on a plane, and they were served lunch on the plane. There were these little packets of salt and pepper. And Paul looked down, and I guess he saw the way that the salt packet was folded, it looked like SGT, Pepper. And, and he just saw that, and a sort of light bulb went off and got this name, Sergeant Pepper, and then filled in the Lonely Hearts Club band. So thanks, United Airlines or Pan Am or whoever was flying them back, you know. <laughs> and then that tied into, you know, when the Beatles were growing up in Liverpool, um, there used to be what they call northern brass bands that would do concerts in, in the park, you know, maybe once every couple of months. And that was a happy memory for all of them as kids, like going to see these old military brass bands who were wearing their uniforms with the epaulets and the fringe, playing French horns and tubas and doing this kind of traditional uh, you know, brass music. So part of the idea of Sgt. Pepper conceptually was, was nostalgia. You know, they were, they were throwing back to these things that they cared about as kids you know, the sergeant or, or the uh, Strawberry Fields was, was a, an orphanage. Penny Lane was a street where they used to, you know, walk and get their haircuts. So this idea of the brass band was something that Paul knew that he wanted to be part of the cover. Also, Paul's dad, Jim McCartney, was a band leader, uh, like a, a, you know, a, a swing band leader. And he had a band called Jim Max Big Orchestra. And Paul had a photograph of his father that kind of looked so, the similar setup to Sgt. Pepper, where the band was in the middle and then all these boys and girls were around them like fans, like well-dressed. So thinking of the brass band, thinking of that photograph of Jim Mack's uh, big band, 
thinking of the salt and pepper uh, packets, all these things, you know, sort of fused together and the idea of Sgt. Pepper was born. When I, I went to London when I was researching this book, and in the uh, Victoria and Albert Museum, they have some artifacts related to Sgt. Pepper. I, got to, I didn't get to touch anything, but I got to see um, Oscar Wilde, like the, the actual cardboard cutout, and, and some of Paul McCartney's sketches, like pen, pen and ink sketches. So, you know, Paul's a pretty talented artist. He's a pretty good painter and, and, a, and a good, like John, was also a really good uh, illustrator. So to see these these illustrations, you see, oh, of course, you know, he had he'd taken all these inspirations and sort of sketched it out. So Peter Blake and Jan Hayworth had, had a lot to go on, you know, from, from Paul was presenting them with, with a, I think, a lot of uh, inspirational design information. So, you know, the, fa the famous bass drum head on the cover of the record that announces the title of the record was painted by a guy named Joe F. Grave. And if you Google Joe F. Grave, there are about three or four entries. There's no information on him. So when I started to research the book, I thought, you know, is this a real guy? I mean, some people were saying it's another Paul is dead clue, like, epitaph grave you know <laughs> so you know one one of the people that that I met during the research process for this book was a woman named um, Jan Hayworth whose name I had come across before but didn't really know much about her she was married to Peter Blake and when people talk about the cover of, of Sergeant Pepper who designed it most often they say oh yeah Peter Blake he did it but that's not really true. Peter Blake and Jan Hayworth did it together. And they're actually listed on the back of the record. You know, it says staging by. That's, it doesn't even say cover design. Jan, I think just because she was a woman in a man's world and, and was less impressed with the Beatles. I mean, she liked them but didn't think it was a career-making thing. It was just another interesting project. Has a really refreshing take on, on everything to do with this. So... In my conversations with her, I felt like I was really getting a lot of accurate, candid information about how this cover was made and designed. And it turns out that Jan was kind of a, a, a circus groupie. You know, she followed these circuses around England, photographing old merry-go-rounds and painted horses. And she loved all the art and the fonts. And she knew this guy, Joe F. Grave who had spent his whole life as a painter for circuses. You know, he painted the horses, he painted all the signs and everything, and he had this very recognizable, vivid style. So when, when it came time to do this drum head, it was Jan's idea, rather than have, you know, some sort of attached graphics uh, that said Sgt. Pepper, she said, let's, let's make it organic to the cover and we'll put it on the drum head. And she hired Joe to do this. And, you know... For Joe, who was living in sort of like a, you know, a caravan outside of London, I'm sure he knew the, who the Beatles were, but it wasn't like, like, again, it wasn't something that he was super impressed with. It was like, yeah, I'll do that. And it just, you know, he did two drum heads. He got paid 25 pounds, <laughs> one time only fee, you know, and they chose one of the drum heads. It, it's funny because uh, Jan says now looking at it, she wishes that she had caught, there's, uh, there's a grammatical error. 
Sergeant Peppers, there should be um, an apostrophe between the R and the S. And she said, you know, she didn't notice that she had so much to do and so so little time to do it, putting this cover together, that it just kind of went by. And then later she's like, oh, it's Peppers, you know, with apostrophe S, not Peppers. Like, But anyway, one of these drum heads is still in the possession, I think, of, of Paul McCartney. One of them has disappeared, you know, into that that mysterious world of, of uh, auctions. Probably some Japanese collector has it at his house, you know, but paid millions of dollars for it. But Joe F. Grave, because I asked Jan, I said, well, what happened to Joe? And she said, she doesn't really know. I mean, she, she tried to track him down via his grandkids and learned that he had moved to Australia sometime during the 70s. And, you know, by now was probably had passed away. But, you know, he never came back to make a claim you know, like, shouldn't I be getting some royalties or monies from this? So for somebody who contributed to, you know, the look of the most famous, iconic rock cover of all times, he's really a mysterious dude. You know, there's no, there's no pictures of him, no interviews. Like, everybody in the Beatles story, even the most tangential people have been interviewed, and some of them have written books, you know. Like, any cause to, to say, like, I was part of the Beatles story is usually enough to get a book deal, you know. So for, for somebody like Joe to, to pretty much disappear and not make any claims, you know, it, it was good to get a little bit of his story at least, that he did exist. Almost all of these things that the, the Beatles brought to EMI, um, even though they were the Beatles and, and their best-selling act, uh, met with resistance, you know. I mean, why would you want lyrics on the record? Why, you know, that's going to cost extra. <laughs> you know, why, why do you want a gatefold sleeve that's going to open? That's going to cost extra. You know, all, all these colors. There, there's an insert. You know, originally the Beatles, you know, this, this uh, insert with the, the cutout mustache and the, the stripes, the sergeant stripes. Originally the Beatles wanted what they called a goodie bag. And it was going to be this little sack with like candy and sweets and actual an actual mustache that you could sort of you know paste on, which was prohibitively expensive, you know, and in no way to to do that. You think about later all the the flack the Stones ran into with with the zipper cover, you know, for or uh, or Andy Warhol ran into with the Stones with the zipper cover. Well, I think you know the Beatles, all their ideas for this cover were expensive and. And problematic, probably the most problematic, I, I think this is incredible in retrospect, is they had all of these famous people alive and dead on this cover. And it was two weeks before the record was released, and they thought, should we get permission from these people? <laughs> <laughs> and EMI, you know, sort of prompted that conversation. And they said, look, you know, we're going to get sued if we put a picture of Johnny Weissmuller or Mae West on here, they're still alive. We're not even asking. And Paul said, "Well, it's the Beatles. They'll 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 love it. You know, they'll be part of, they'll be part of the gang." So two weeks out before the release, EMI hired a couple of their secretaries to work full time getting permissions, making you know. And it's not like it would be today where you could send emails and get these things done overnight. They were making long distance phone calls trying to track down each person or the estates, in some cases, of, of people who had passed away, saying, look, you know, we're doing this cover. Uh, we've got 
this person's image on it, do we have your written permission? They only got through about 40% before the record came out, and then they just let it go. <laughs> and of the people they contacted, only one said no. And that was Leo Gorsi, who was a famous member of, of the uh, Bowery Boys. Slip Mahoney was his, was his name in the Bowery Boys. And Leo Gorsi or his agent said, you know, if you're going to use Leo, you need to pay us $400. It was some really random amount, which is, is kind of sad in retrospect. You think by that point in 67, Leo was probably not working too much and could use the dough. And the Beatles said, well, we can't set a precedent. If we're going to pay one pe person, we're going to have to end up paying everybody. So they quietly, they had made the figure of Leo and removed him from the cover. Um, Mae West apparently objected, you know, and said, why would I be part of a Lonely Hearts Club, you know? <laughs> and, but, but Paul and John wrote her a personal letter and said, you know, we adore you and we love your movies. Like, please be part of it. And that was enough to win her approval. But I, I think... The biggest hurdle for this cover was was those permissions. And, and amazing to think in, in our litigious world today, can you imagine if this record came out now and they didn't have permissions? The lawsuits? Yeah, especially in America. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, especially in America. So amazing that even all these years later, there, there have not been lawsuits, you know. <laughs> was this Brian Epstein's headache to oversee? Yes, definitely. <laughs> I mean, Brian and... and the head of EMI was a guy named Sir Joseph Lockwood, who apparently paid a visit to Paul McCartney. This was an, a week out when they were, you know, well into trying to get to the permissions and realizing they weren't going to be able to get them all. And EMI was just trying to protect their, their behinds. And the story goes that Joe Lockwood came around to Paul's apartment with a sort of modified version of the cover where all of the figures were gone and it was just blue sky behind the Beatles. And he said, what do you think of this? This might be nice, right? And Paul said, no, you know. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I had a whole, a whole sidebar in my chapter called Pepper Sprouts about how the mustaches, you know, as, as innocent as they may seem, kind of set the Beatles free. Because, first of all, nobody, you know, the Beatles hairdresser, this guy named Leslie Cavendish, great name, said, if you had walked around London in 1966, you would not have seen one single person, one single man under the age of 60 with a mustache or a beard. It just was unheard of. So for the Beatles to grow mustaches was shocking, you know. The thing about the mustaches, too, is they were all, in a way, grown for different reasons. So Paul was in a moped accident in 1966, fell off his moped and broke his front tooth. And as a way to disguise that chipped tooth before he got it fixed, he decided to grow a mustache in hopes that the mustache would sort of come over his lip because they, they were being photographed all the time. Like he, he was self-conscious about this broken tooth. George grew his mustache because he was going to India to visit Ravi Shankar. For, for lessons, and he was, Ravi said, you know, you're going to be recognized here unless you take up some sort of disguise. A lot of Indian men have mustaches, so why don't you grow a mustache before you come over? You know, and it, George grew it thinking like, okay, maybe this will work. He got to the hotel and immediately was recognized, even though he checked in under a, an assumed name. 
And then, you know, I think John and Ringo sort of followed suit, but it, but really the mustaches ended up being this thing that I don't think the Beatles realized was was going to be a key in sort of setting them free, you know. And then, uh, again, a trend where everybody in, in London post-1967 started having waxed mustaches and beards and stuff, you know. <laughs> But yeah, a little bit about the mustaches. Was this happening in San Francisco yet? Or? Well, again, yeah, I, I think that the zeit, you, you know, you think about zeitgeist and how the world was less connected then because there was no internet, but but there was a zeitgeist enough that parallel ideas were happening. You know, day glow colors, the idea of like let's put a sitar and an Indian raga into a band, let's grow a mustache, let's let's grow our hair, let's wear these these Victorian related clothes even without knowing that it was happening in london it was happening in san francisco because i think it was just in the air when i was a little kid i was about 10 years old i remember one of the earliest trivia questions i heard was who are the two olympic gold medalists on the cover of sergeant peppers and the answer was sonny liston and johnny weissmiller right that was when I first learned Johnny Weissmuller had a life before Tarzan, <laughs> right. and that I was also doomed to a life of knowing these silly little yeah. <laughs> factoids. <laughs> but um, in those famous pictures of the Beatles and Muhammad Ali, I don't think a lot of people realize they didn't know who Muhammad Ali was. They were going to see Sonny Liston that day. Right. <laughs> well, can I tell you a, a, an interesting Johnny Weissmuller fact? So. The very first uh, magazine piece I ever did was for Entertainment Weekly, and it was it was for an anniversary of the first Tarzan movie. And I interviewed Maureen O'Sullivan, who was who played Jane, and and you know got into the Tarzan lore. But if you don't know, and it might be of some interest to your to your listeners, the very famous Tarzan yell actually has a, a kind of it's related to Sgt. Pepper in a way because it's a sound collage. It's not just Johnny Weissmuller yelling. The Tarzan yell was the product of about six different sounds fused together. And this is before multi-tracking. It was an operatic tenor, the roar of a lion. It was a violin. Uh, I think the, the note was a D recorded backwards. So they fed all of these. I think there were four different sounds that were threaded into Weissmuller's sound. Like he, you know, he could do, as he later did, he could do the Tarzan yell. But when you listen to the movie and the Tarzan yell comes on, you can almost hear, it's like, it's almost like a needle being dropped because they recorded this thing and probably back then in 1931, 32, cut it to disc. But it's actually a sound collage, you know? I'd it, never heard that. Yeah, it, it's, it's a fascinating thing. And, and I guess... Early sound designers, you know, they were just, they were kind of flying blind, like saying, we got to come up with this sound that's, that's really compelling and interesting and believable yeah. as the ape man would make, you know. Remember they did the same thing with Godzilla's roar. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah and that's a long time ago, 1932. Um, as, as far as, I don't really know. I mean, I, I, Jan Hayworth told me that, that Madame Tussauds, who provided the, the wax figure of Sonny Liston that ended up on the cover, was getting ready to to remove Sonny Liston from from the, the Tussauds floor. So I think it was it was easier to obtain that figure because it was basically being discontinued. I don't know what they do with wax figures 
when they're done with them, they probably just put them in or maybe they melt them down, you know, but because it was used on the pepper cover, then it became, uh, you know, it sort of had this extra cachet. And again, it was something that ended up uh, at Sotheby's. It got bid on. I think it's, I want to say it's still owned by somebody again, you know, probably some crazy collector. You know, like I said, when I went to the V&A Museum, I was amazed to see the Oscar Wilde figure up close because there's a perception when you look at that cover that these figures are sort of bigger than life, you know, but they're actually quite small. And one of the things that blew my mind when, when Jan was telling me about how this cover was made, her father was a famous Hollywood set designer, and he had worked you know, in Hollywood movies like The Guns of Navarone, like big 50s, you know, 60s movies. So she grew up around, she was a Hollywood kid. And she told me that she she knew how to create the illusion of depth with this crowd. So when you, when you look at the, the way the Beatles are standing and to the back row of the crowd, I guess there's four or five rows of, of people, the actual distance between the Beatles and the back row is only two feet which is amazing when you think how small two feet is, and yet you look at the cover and it's like, that looks like it was shot, you know, it goes maybe back 10, 12, 15 feet. And these figures are very thin. They're on what uh, hardboard. It's not cardboard. It's, it's like a kind of masonite. They're, the images were paper. They were glued to the masonite, and then, then they were hand-tinted. So it was very old school. Like, they sent out... You know, once they decided on, on who was in the crowd, they sent Neil Aspinall and Mal Evans to libraries and said, see if you can find... And you think about this happening in 1966. See if you can find a picture of Mahatma Gandhi. You know, see if you can find a picture, you know, of, of whoever's on the cover and then we'll cut it out and then hand tint it, paste it to a board and then, you know, nail it to a wall. <laughs> Today, how easy that... You could probably do it overnight in Photoshop, you know just grabbing pictures from Google image search, you know. Yeah, it was set up in a studio uh, for a very famous photographer named Michael Cooper. And, you know, they rented the studio. They, they spent, I guess, four or five days assembling the set, you know, um, tinting the, the figures, nailing them to the wall, you know, ordering the flowers from a famous florist. And there's a whole story there where, you know, Jan ordered these flowers that she wanted to replicate a flower bed that she had seen at the Hammersmith Public Park. And she had this idea where she was going to write the Beatles in flowers. And she wanted these really sort of tight flowers that would sit close to the ground. And the florist in London sent her the wrong flowers. They were these hyacinths that she described as being like pink celery stalks that were just, you know, frustrating and unworkable and she had to trim them all down and then sort of refasten them to the ground again you know sort of for a band as big as the beatles there was there was a lot of sort of like <laughs> makeshift last minute jerry built stuff happening here you know um famously there was a kid who was a delivery boy for the florist and he came in to the studio and he had this idea that he wanted to contribute um he wanted to make a floral guitar 
And Peter Blake said, oh, sure, you know, like that would be a really sweet thing. And Jan was like, no, you know, we don't want some kid like just contributing something at the last minute. So they had a big argument, but Peter won out and the kid made this guitar and Jan to this day hates it. She said it, it looks like a big old bone. There's nothing about it that looks like a guitar. <laughs> so all these things years later, you know, she, when she looks at the cover, you know, she's proud of it, but she's seeing all these things like, oh my God, that could have been done so much better. That doesn't look right, you know. <laughs> That's what we all do. Yeah. She told me that the first figure that she tinted for the cover was Tyrone Power. And apparently that the tint that she had, she didn't really know how it was how it was going to look. And she spilled a bit of it and it it made Tyrone Power really orange. He looked like he like almost like a Trump tan, you know. <laughs> and she said she couldn't fix it. So after that, she was super cautious and careful with the color because she didn't want everybody to look, you know, like an Oompa you know. <laughs> Are there outtake uh, photos of just people standing around working? Yes, there there are, and it makes you appreciate how many people were were involved. You know that Michael Cooper, the photographer, had several assistants. Uh, Jan and Peter had assistants. Mal Evans and Neil Aspinall were in there, so there was a team of people, like you know, carting the figures around, uh, tinting things, you know, making sure the flowers were right. By the time the Beatles showed up, there was a good five or six days of preparation done, you know. And when they walked into the studio, I mean, they had just come out of EMI. They had been recording Mr. Kite. So they had a full day. I mean, they were tired. They were probably all high, you know. But they just kind of breezed in. And, you know, Jan said it was very professional. Like, there wasn't much goofing around. Like, they were just, you know, they knew what to do in front of the camera. And they took pictures, and there's also, you know, we're talking about this, about the innovations of the sleeve, the idea of the gatefold. The photograph that's in the middle of the gatefold was a kind of last-minute idea. The Beatles felt like they were a little worried that the cover was going to be too abstract for their fans and that their fans, like, would not know what to think of it. So they wanted something that would have a little bit more what, what Paul... I think called heart appeal, you know. So a close-up of their faces that, even though they were wearing mustaches and costumes, they could still be recognized. You know, obviously the Beatles are doing something new, but oh yeah, there's the mop tops that we know and love. They're still sweet guys, you know. So that was the the thought um, behind that picture in the cover. You know, they were going to do another psychedelic collage, but at the last minute, this idea of let's make something a little more relatable. But that, that does raise the, the thing of, of the, the people that didn't make the cover. And I think most famously, you know, when, when Peter Blake and Jan Hayworth sat down with the Beatles, they said, like, make us a list of everybody you want on the cover. And by that point, George was really into Indian religions and meditation. So all of his contributions were gurus. Ringo said, you know, I'll go along with whatever the boys want. He didn't, he wasn't very particular about it. Paul had... Uh, mostly, you know, pop culture people, James Dean, you know, Lenny Bruce, things like that. But but Lennon, being the contrarian that he was, said, I want Adolf Hitler and Jesus. <laughs> well, you know, to the point where they, John, or Jan Hayworth and Peter Blake, made the figures. So they actually, there were figures of Adolf Hitler and Jesus. And you can see 
in some of the outtake photos, the figure of, of Hitler made it into the crowd. And then at the last minute, Paul McCartney talked John out of it and just said, you know, this is, I think it's a step too far. But I, I think John probably felt like he won just because the figures got made and they're, you know, they were in there and he saw them. And But yeah, there's a very famous uh, outtake of, you can see, I think it's Jan lifting up the, the Hitler figure, like while she's toting it off the, the soundstage. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is right after... John got in a bunch of trouble oh, for man. saying yeah. bigger than Jesus. Yeah, that the, the Fuhrer from the from the whole <laughs> the bigger than Jesus thing had just died down. So imagine. Well, uh, and they also wanted um, Gandhi, and apparently, again, this this head of EMI, Joe Lockwood, said, "Look, you know, we have EMI uh, branches all over the world, and we have one in India, and if if we put Gandhi on the cover." It, it's going to raise, you know, a huge problem in India because this is a, this is a guy who's a holy man, he's a sacred figure, and to put him in the midst of all these other figures who are, you know, perceived as not profane but not sacred, is is probably going to cause a, a riot in India. So please, we got to take him off. You know, you know, I I love the idea of of them sort of elevating themselves into this this world. As imaginary as an imaginary band, but s- sitting alongside all these figures that are both sacred and profane, you know, and I, I don't think they ever thought beyond this. So when the Beatles knew that they wanted to dress up, that they were going to be this fictional band, Sergeant Pepper, which would give them the permission not to be the Beatles, you know, suddenly they could make this different kind of music, they could wear mustaches, they could, they could be anybody that they wanted to be. They thought, well, we don't want to wear just straight military garb. There, there was some thought, we, how do we take this idea and undermine it? So the idea was, let's do it in really outlandish colors. So they knew that they had to get these costumes made. So they found a costumer in, in London called M. Berman, Monty Berman, uh, this is and this is a whole fascinating chapter too. Monty Berman, his family had had this company since the 1890s. They'd been making costumes for the stage. They had worked with the British Army in World War II, making fake British co- or fake Nazi uh, outfits for an undercover operation for the British Army. Uh, they had made costumes for for all kinds of famous movies for stars like Audrey Hepburn. Um, they were the, the place to go if you needed a costume made. So the Beatles contacted Berman and said, we want to have these costumes made, but in day-glow colors, you know. So a guy came around the EMI studio with a kind of fabric swatch book, you know. <laughs> they chose their colors, and then they went to Berman, and Paul described it as being like, you know, kids being turned loose at the costume shop. They were just grabbing and grabbing you know, this and that, and they put their costumes together, and then Berman made, you know, the costume, uh, custom-made costumes for each, and then they left it up to them, left it up to the guys in, in the Beatles to sort of decorate their costumes. They put badges and stuff on, but the, probably the most interesting part of this is John, who wanted to outdo everybody, remembered that Pete Best, Pete Best's grandfather had been in the British Raj in World War I, and was a decorated soldier. 
and had all of these beautiful badges. And John remembered from the time they were kids. And he wrote to Pete Best's mom, Mona, and said, you know, this is four years after they sacked Pete Best, you know, but I guess they still had an okay relationship. And John said, could, could I possibly borrow, you know, all of those real badges? And apparently Mona, Mona sent them down to London and John put them all in his costume for the photo shoot and then mailed them back with a signed copy of Sgt. Pepper. But yeah, the, the, the whole sort of story behind these costumes, you know, it, again, it was, it was a way to, to sort of subvert to honor the military idea, but also subvert it at the same time. Yeah, so when, of course, when the Beatles went to uh, Hamburg, you know, long before they got signed to EMI, their bass player was this guy, Stu Sutcliffe, who was John's best friend. And Stu was a, was a painter. Um, he couldn't play the bass. So, but he looked good. He was a really handsome young guy. So when they played at the Cavern, or when they played at the, on the Reaper Bond at the Star Club, Stu would turn his back to the audience and be pretending. And, you know, later he, he decided that he really wanted to be an artist, and that's one of the reasons Paul took up the bass, you know. So, yeah, Stu, and Stu died tragically young of a brain tumor. You know, there, there's a, uh, a great movie called Nowhere Boy that was made a few years back about that period in the Beatles' life, especially about the friendship between John and Stu. And Stu was also the one who introduced the Beatles to um, Klaus Vormann and Astrid Kirschher. Astrid was the one who gave them the Beatles' haircuts. So Stu plays a really important part. I mean, aside from being John's best friend, I think that was the other reason he ended up on the Pepper cover. I'm amazed at how easy it is not to know so much about the Beatles. Yeah. Because you think you know some anecdotes and stuff, and then there's just all just so much. I I totally felt that as I was working on this piece. I mean, I, I spent just for the chapter I wrote, I spent about three or four months living in 1966 and 67. And I, I decided to do research the old way, where I was mostly confining myself on purpose. To books and magazines and interviews. I only used the internet as a last resource. And getting offline, I think, was it was really valuable. I mean, you know, sometimes when you just spend time offline, you immediately start to feel sharper and smarter, you know? <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I, you know, I was I was buying um you know, like Punch Magazine and Melody Maker from 1966-67, just to kind of get get a sense of what it was really like and what was going on in, in the context that this came out of, you know. Um, Appreciate you inviting me oh, yeah. over here, man. <laughs> My pleasure, always. It's great to see you again. Yeah, great to see you too. Hear these stories. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Bill for inviting me into his kitchen in Nashville. You can find out everything you need to know about Bill 
at walkinnashville.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment, subscribe, and you'll get a brand new episode free as soon as it's available. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.